If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. There were specific instructions from the Chinese government that the laborers should obviously not be used as soldiers. But of course, some of them did come very close to the front. If you were bringing up ammunition to the front lines, if you were digging trenches, um, as the front line moved, you could get caught. That was Francis Wood talking about members of the Chinese Labour Corps during the First World War. Let's not forget they volunteered to come from China. They have travelled thousands of miles to the Western Front. They're working seven days a week for very low wages and they're regarded as, as a step below the white uh, officers who command them. And that was Spencer Jones on the way in which Chinese labourers were sometimes regarded. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This Sunday, the 12th of November, Channel 4 will be broadcasting a documentary entitled Britain's Forgotten Army, which tells the little-known story of the vast numbers of Chinese workers who came to Europe during the First World War to assist the Allied war effort. It also follows the successful campaign to have a memorial in the United Kingdom to commemorate the contribution of the Chinese Labour Corps. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, has been speaking to some of the historians who worked on the programme. And first of all, we'll hear from Dr Francis Wood, who is former curator of Chinese collections at the British Library. So for people who might not have heard of this story, what was the Chinese Labour Corps and how did it come about? 
the Chinese Labour Corps was something like 140,000 Chinese who came over to Europe to serve in the First World War from 1917 onwards. It was um, a response to the desperate shortage of manpower felt by Britain and France in particular, that the battles on the Somme had been so devastating that they were very, very short of manpower. And they couldn't, what they couldn't do was afford to have soldiers and all the infrastructure that's needed to keep a front going. So they hired laborers from China to build roads, to dig trenches, to keep up um, the supply of ammunition and all sorts of other things to the front to when the tanks came in the Chinese were in charge of cleaning and repairing the tanks and did very well on that they did all the sort of heavy duty infrastructural work that's absolutely essential to keep a a war going as it were why did they turn to China for this because there was a terrible problem in in Europe I mean everyone was either fighting or desperately needed elsewhere, that the shortage of manpower in Europe was so very strong. There was some use by the British in particular, and the French actually, of um, colonial troops, uh, but not really colonial labour so much. And um, I think they found in general that it was much more difficult for people like Indians to come and work in the horribly cold and muddy Western Front. So the Chinese themselves, I mean, they had made an offer of labor they made offers to the british to help in world war 1 right from the very beginning but it was a slightly complicated business because china was officially neutral so it wasn't supposed to be seen to be helping one side or the other in the in the war although it's quite clear that most of the people in the chinese government felt very strongly they wanted to support um the british and the french so they made an offer an official offer as it were by um there was a a finance minister who was very cunning. He made an offer to the French, and the French took it up very quickly. And um, that was there was an agreement um, in 1916 uh, that that troops should be sent, not troops, sorry, that that labourers should be sent to France. And in France, they were mostly employed actually in factories, replacing men who'd been sent to the front or in the utilities, working in the electricity plants and so on. The British were a bit slower off the mark and um, recruited from the British naval base in Weihai Wei. Uh, There had been an idea, perhaps we should recruit from Hong Kong, uh, but then the, the governor of Hong Kong said it was no good recruiting people in Hong Kong. They were too small and that they didn't like what he called farinaceous food. You know, they were absolutely determined rice eaters, which was difficult. Uh, And they simply weren't strong enough. So the idea was to recruit the stronger, tougher, northern um, Shandong labourers who were resistant to cold and used to hard work in sort of really rather nasty and difficult conditions. So what did China get out of this arrangement then? Well, it's difficult to know exactly what China hoped. I mean, you have to think of China at the time was a rather kind of confused place with very different factions within the government. It does seem as if Liang Shiyi, who made the original proposal, did want uh, China to be sort of recognised as an ally. But of course, that's in warfare, you have to kind of abide by the rules and China remained neutral. So these coolie laborers, as they were called, were not really part of any sort of deliberate strategy by China to kind of be seen as an ally. Um, Later on in the war, uh, many people thought that maybe the Chinese should use the coolie laborers as 
really as a as a tool to say you know we have helped you in the war now you must help us at the end of the war in the peace proposals at um at versailles but because of china's neutrality until 1917 you, they they weren't really it wasn't really possible to argue that the laborers represented china's contribution to the war it had to be seen as a a separate business arrangement if you like Mm. And how many people were recruited and to what extent did they really know what they were signing up for? There are about 140,000 were recruited in all, something like nearly 100,000 by the British and um, 37 or so thousand by the French. The French recruited in the south in Guangzhou one, not far from Hong Kong, and the British, as I've said, recruited in the north and Shandong province. Um, the the labourers themselves had, I think, almost no idea of what was going to happen. It's perhaps important to say that that coolie or emigrant labor had been a feature of the sort of poverty-stricken China from the middle of the 19th century. Um, Coolie laborers went off to work all over the place. I mean, the British employed a lot of Chinese laborers in the mines in South Africa in the late 19th century. And there was quite a considerable feeling against that amongst liberals in the UK. But for the Chinese themselves, so there was they knew that there was a tradition of working abroad. You did it for money. You weren't doing it to go and learn English or anything like that, simply to work hard and send money back home. And I imagine that that was all they knew. I don't think they knew anything about the war. There were specific instructions from the Chinese government that the, the laborers should obviously not be used as soldiers. But of course, some of them did come very close to the front. If you were bringing up ammunition to the front lines, if you were digging trenches, um, as the front line moved, you could get caught. And that did sometimes happen to these poor labourers. You mentioned money there. How much were they paid on average, roughly? Um, Oh, that's quite complicated because it was very, there were different rates of pay from the French and from the British. But the main thing was that they were paid only a few francs when they were in France, uh, and they were kept under, particularly the where those working for the British were kept under very strict sort of military conditions. They were in military camps, so they didn't have much chance to spend it. Most of their money, um, that several dollars a month, was given to their families back home, and it was given directly. So it was handed out in Shandong province to the labourer families there. They all had chitties and they had to go to the post office and collect it. So the money was definitely for the family, and what little money they had um, in the camps in France, they tended to gamble with. That was a a fear that, that that they were going to gamble too much and then there would be fights and so on. So they were kept very short themselves. Hmm. We should talk about the journey uh, to Britain from China. How long did that take and what were conditions like? It took varying amounts of time. I mean, th- there were complications. If you think of the distance, were quite, it's quite complicated. The French first sent their, um, their, their recruits by sea and ending up through the Mediterranean, Um, a more direct route. But this was unfortunately stopped when there was one of the French transportation ships taking some 500 labourers was the Athos, was um, sunk by a German U-boat in February 1917. So the British then, who were only just beginning their transportation, took an extraordinarily lengthy voyage by sea across the Pacific to Vancouver. Then they were transported across Canada to the other side. Um, And then they embarked on ships, ending up mostly in in Liverpool. Um, And the the voyage itself 
was pretty lengthy. But also there were things like when they arrived in Vancouver, they had to be quarantined to see if they were carrying any infectious diseases. So they were kept in the quarantine camp at William Head. And the, there's a lot of um, argument about their transportation across Canada itself. Canada and, and America, indeed, at the time had exclusion laws. They didn't want unrestricted Chinese emigration. And so Chinese were only allowed to come into the country if they applied, if they paid money, if they had they fulfilled certain criteria. So they didn't want trains full of cheerful Chinese rolling through the Canadian countryside. So these poor uh, coolie workers were put into trains where the windows were blocked up and they were driven in absolute secrecy across Canada by rail um, so that no Canadian could see that or particularly any Chinese emigrant in, in Canada could see Chinese people rolling through Canada and think that this was sort of unrestricted emigration. So they, they were treated really very much as kind of, you know, semi-criminals really. I mean, they were herded from one side of the world to the other and then across Canada. And some of them died, didn't they, on on, on, on the way? They did. Uh I mean, they were fairly carefully checked in Wei Highway as to their health, but um, certainly things like TB quite often caught up with them. Mm. So once they arrived, uh, whereabouts were they located and what sort of jobs did they do? We've talked a bit about this, but what sort of things did they did they, they do? They, well, they finally, they, they get to Liverpool and then they... Their, their movements in England, it's quite interesting. It's incredibly difficult to find out about how they travelled around England, um, but probably by train down to the south coast and then by ship across to France. When they were in France, they were, as I say, kept in sort of military camps, you know, housed in tents and um, and sort of temporary dwellings. And they did a variety of manual work. They dug trenches. They were uh, apparently much faster at digging trenches than British soldiers or Indian soldiers. There are statistics showing that they were absolutely record-breaking um, trench diggers. They carried ammunition up to the front. They mended the railways that also brought ammunition and food and so on and supplies to the army. They kept the railways going. They kept roads um, clear when the roads were bombed and so on. The holes had to be filled in. They kept um, airfields, the such airfields that were used, where they kept those clear when there were bombs. Again, the holes had to be filled in so that planes could land safely. Uh, and when tanks were finally used in, in the First World War, the Chinese did a great deal um, of work on the tanks, keeping them clean, maintaining them, and also um, rolling out the the, the bundles of, of, of wood that were used to help them get across trenches and so on. So they were very close to the front line uh, and in, essential in supplies. One of the things I found quite funny was that um, a few of them were also used as batmen by the um, by the British soldiers, that um, there's a, a wonderful phrase book which was produced for the use of the British Army when dealing with the Chinese Labour Corps. And one of the sections is clearly intended for a sort of personal servant. It's, it's full of... Um, Phrases, like, you know, in Chinese, like "bring me a basin, I want to wash," "clean my shoes," "put them under the bed," "do this, that, and the other." And I, I had no idea that Chinese coolies might be used in that way. As that's amazing. Um, I mean, how 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 dangerous or hard were the conditions in which they worked? The conditions were undoubtedly hard. Um, I mean, you you have seen pictures of trench warfare: the mud, the rain. Uh, 
the shelling, which was fairly constant. Um, so conditions were very hard. They weren't actually fighting, so they weren't completely at the front, but they had to do all sorts of ghastly jobs as well. To, I mean, to, particularly towards the end of the war, things like clearing battlefields of dead bodies and then clearing away ammunition, whether used or unused. So quite dangerous things. They were very close to things like potentially exploding ammunition. They were also shelled sometimes when shells went slightly beyond the front line. Uh, so their conditions were unpleasant, uncertain and dangerous. Are there any particular episodes of the war that we should rethink in terms of these people's contribution to it? I don't I mean, I think their work with the tanks is quite extraordinary. I mean, if you go to the tank museum, um, you can read the most extraordinary tributes that were paid to the Chinese labourers by the people who worked sort of in charge of them, that the tank regiments could not have survived without the Chinese. And I think you also have to think that, um, you know, that the terrible worry, I mean, people like Lloyd George and Churchill were fairly convinced in 1916 that we were going to win the, lose the war because of a shortage of manpower. And were it not for the Chinese, that would probably have happened. So they were absolutely vital because you can't run a front line, an army. You can't fight battles unless you've got supplies coming up. And the Chinese were largely responsible for the maintenance of supplies to the Western Front. Hmm. Was there much acknowledgement of, at the time of how useful these people were? I think it's very interesting that at, at the time, the people who worked with them were generally generally quite impressed. I mean, there, there were an awful lot of punch cartoons about the Chinese being rather daffy and wearing three hats at a time and not knowing what their numbers were and so on. But generally speaking, the people who worked with them spoke of them very warmly. The really awful thing, I think, is that it's particularly after the war that you get people like Lloyd George and Balfour um, who say, you know, that China did absolutely nothing in the war, Balfour said something. Like, you know, why should the Chinese get any kind of um, favourable treatment from us? They, they didn't give a penny to the war and they did not lose a single life. Well, I mean, that is blatantly untrue. Many coolie lives were lost, um, 500 on the, in the Athos and um, probably several thousands um, as well. I mean, you only have to go to the cemeteries in northern France and you can find all the Chinese cemeteries. So people like Balfour say the Chinese contributed nothing, which is absolutely untrue. And people like Lloyd George said you know, uh, after the war, though he was desperate to get the Chinese there, after the war, he says, well, you know, they didn't make much of a contribution really. So um, I suppose, I think in a sense they were, you know, at the time they were known, they were to some extent recognised, but it's almost immediately, immediately after the war, they just get forgotten totally. Why do you think those people said those things? Oh, politics around Versailles. I mean, if you look at the, the, the Versailles Treaty it is the most extraordinary event and the events leading up to Versailles. I mean, we're still living with all of this. You know, what is Europe now but the result of a lot of decisions made at the Versailles Treaty? What was the Second World War? Well, the result of Versailles. The politicking, the dividing up of countries, the deciding who was good and who was bad was absolutely appalling. And the Japanese, of course, um, who were British allies in the First World War, although as many of the British um, ambassadors and um, generals felt they were the most unreliable allies you could possibly have. But Japan was a rising power. Japan was determined to take over China. And in a way, you can see all of Japan's um, 
all of all that Japan did in the First World War was a move towards its invasion of China. And that continues after the war through the 30s. They get what they want at Versailles. They're given the German possessions in Shandong. The Chinese don't get their their territory back. The Japanese get it. And it's so, you know, the period immediately after the war is of the rise of Japan. And it's not until rather late in the day that I think that Europeans realize that they have actually given Japan, as it were, the excuse to just continue its invasion of China. What happened to these people next then? Those who worked for the British, who'd been hired by the British, were all sent home. They were all put on ships. They were returned to, in fact, mostly to Qingdao, which ghastly by then was in in Japanese hands. Um, And they were paid off. They were given their fair home and food for the journey. Um, The first to return were the sick who were brought back in November 1918. And the last to go back were the criminals who arrived back in 1920. And... As far as we know, they just really, almost all of them, just sort of returned to the life of farm labourers. I mean, the reason they had left in the first place was poverty um, and famine in the area. And they go back to the same hard life of um, peasant farmers in in the area that they'd come from. They, of those who worked for the French, about 3,000 stayed in France their living conditions had been very different because they had most of them worked, as I said, in factories or in the utilities. Um, They weren't kept in military camps under the same sort of discipline. Um, Some of them were housed in tents. Some of them lodged with French families. And you do find quite a large number who married French wives and stayed on quite happily. So it was a very different story for the the French uh, labourers and for those who'd worked for the British. Mm, Thank you. Um, why has this story remained secret for so long and what led to it finally coming to light? It's interesting that I, there's a, suddenly there is this fantastic interest in the Chinese Labour Corps, which is absolutely marvellous. Um, I think there have, been, there have been initiatives for quite a long time. There's a wonderful man called Steve Lau who has been trying for at least a decade, if not longer, to, to put up a memorial to the Chinese Labour Corps because he felt they are a forgotten group from the First World War. And he's been having working hard for, the, for a decade. Um, and then I suppose we're coming up, of course, to the 100th well, in fact, we've passed the 100th anniversary of those going to France um, you know, and the first leaving, um, getting to leaving England was the on the 18th of January 1917. But it's sort of this year is the year in which most of the labourers who went to work for the British celebrates its centenary. So it's probably that. Um, I must say, when I wrote the book, Betrayed Ally, book about China in the First World War in the whole, on the whole, but also with a chapter on the Labour Corps. Um, people weren't very interested. They kept saying, oh, we've heard everything about the First World War. There's nothing else to know. What do we care? But the Chinese Labour Corps have suddenly caught the popular imagination. And I think what's nice is that, you know, there are a few people in the UK and certainly a lot of people in Shandong, um, you know, who are suddenly interested in their grandfather's tales, even if the grandfather is no longer there. Some of them have medals that were given out to all the all the labourers. They were handed out in, in Wei Hai Wei. And so people are looking at their own family history and discovering what some of their grandfathers did in the First World War, travel all the way to Europe, far from their comfort zone. How would you like this story to change people's views of the wider war and its aftermath? I, suppose? I think I'd, I'd love for people to go back to Versailles 
and look at the ghastly decisions that were made there. Um, Harold Nicholson wrote a wonderful book about, he was in Versailles, a very young man, sort of running around, fetching maps and so on for the great statesmen who were there. And his book is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it if you think of how Europe is now, the divisions that were made, um, the places that were, you know, people were suddenly told you're not Polish anymore, you're Russian and so on. Um, amazing decisions were made. The whole of Yugoslavia really kind of develops out of decisions made at Versailles. I, I do think it 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 deserves a rethink and a, re, a look again, because you uh, you can look at the, um, the way decisions were made. There's a fantastic um, volume produced by the in- French interpreter for Clemenceau, Paul Montoux, who obviously had enough time um, sitting there with the, the big four, with Clemenceau, Lloyd George, Wilson, and then sometimes the Italian and uh, prime minister, although he stormed out in tears over Woodrow Wilson's decisions about Fiume. Um, he did come back again later. But you have Paul Martoux could write down all the things that the people say. And it is just, you have these 19th century style grandees saying, oh, what, where's that? Goodness me, I had no idea it was so far away. And surely we could, you know, move this here. And oh, gosh, we're getting pressure from the Australians about the islands. The Japanese want them and the Australians want them. Um, But then the Australians don't want any Japanese near Australia. I mean, it's the most extraordinary, the most extraordinary story of decisions being made affecting people's lives all over the world by four languid gentlemen sitting in a hotel room in Paris. That was Dr. Francis Wood. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. And Matt also spoke to Dr Spencer Jones, who is Senior Lecturer in Armed Forces and War Studies at the University of Wolverhampton. How did you get involved in this project? Well, my interest is military history on the Western Front in general, and that incorporates a whole host of things, the fighting, the command, but also the logistical side of the First World War and the Western Front in particular. And it was my interest in the logistics of the Western Front, how the ammunition was got forward, how the wounded were got back, how you even supply things like the horses at the front line, as well as the men with their own rations, that drew me to this project. And I was approached because of my interest, particularly in the logistics of the British Army in 1916 and 1917. And that is, of course, when the Chinese Labour Corps is brought to the Western Front. And it was that connection that prompted Channel 4 to contact me to become involved in the in the programme. Mm. I mean, how dire was the situation logistically before this happened? Well, it was very severe by 1916. And to understand why it was so bad, it's necessary to just give a little explanation about the demands that were placed on soldiers at the front line. We always think of soldiers at the front line as fighting, as being in the trenches, as being involved in combat. In actual fact, a lot of the time that soldiers spent at the front line, they weren't fighting or even in the trenches. They were carrying out what were called fatigue duties behind the lines. And that could be anything. It could be repairing roads, laying rail, digging new trenches, constructing wells, assembling supply dumps. Almost anything you can think of could be 
uh, a duty that the soldiers would be required to do. And they were called fatigues partially uh, as a mocking term because they would fatigue the soldier. Now, the problem with doing a fatigue, aside from wearing a soldier out when he could be uh, resting or recuperating, is it greatly diminished the time that was available for training. And one of the big problems the British Army had at the Battle of the Somme was there was very little time to train the army. And so it went into battle oh, almost without any significant battle training. And of course, it suffered very heavy losses. And these two factors then combined. You don't have enough time to train your soldiers because they're always working. They're always digging and carrying and carrying out what the army regarded as menial labor. And at the same time, the consequence of that lack of time is they then suffer very heavy casualties, which means the survivors have to do even more work behind the lines. And it, it adds up and adds up and adds up. And so there was a huge demand, uh, an urgent demand, in fact, for having some form of manpower that could carry out labour and relieve the soldiers from this duty. What sort of solutions had, had people come up with before this? Or was this top of the list to start with? This was largely top of the list to begin with. There had been work on logistics, of course, before 1916. The rail system the British Army used had been reformed in 1916 under the leadership of Sir Eric Geddes, who was a civilian railway man who came and brought civilian methods to military railways. But that key problem of you needed manpower, you needed lifting power to actually carry out the work had not been solved up until now. And it's interesting that one of the most successful commanders of the um, 1st of July, the opening of the Battle of the Somme, Sir Ivor Maxey, who commanded 18th Division, he was asked after his battle, his division had done very well, it was one of the few divisions that actually succeeded at the Somme, and he was asked, what was the secret to your success? And he said, well, I had time to train. And he said, if we could scour the British Empire for labour of any kind who could relieve our soldiers of some duties, we would do a lot better in our next battle. And so even the soldiers at the front line are identifying a need to have additional manpower, labourers to come and carry out some of this work. Mm. So why did attention turn to China and not anywhere else, say? Well, there are a number of reasons why China was chosen. First of all, we have to remember there was a long history of China exporting labour to the West. The great expansion of the American railroads after the American Civil War in the 1860s and 70s, had been fueled largely by Chinese labour. Similar work had been carried out in Canada as they constructed their railroads, again using Chinese labour. And Britain had recent experience of bringing Chinese labourers to a war zone, and that had been in South Africa in the Boer War. After the Boer War had finished in 1902, there was a need to reconstruct the country, which had been devastated by war, and also to get the economy up and running again through mines and so on. And a huge number of Chinese labourers had been brought out in 1902 and 1903 and put to work in South Africa. The British had knew that the Chinese were willing to work. They regarded the Chinese as a particularly hardy people, um, willing to travel, willing to carry out long hours. And of course, and perhaps most important for the British economy, the Chinese were willing to work for a very cheap wage. Was there any political or military resistance to this plan? I'm not aware of any military resistance. I think the military was simply glad to have labourers behind the lines who could carry out work rather than their soldiers. But this was something of a, a political hot potato, or at least it had been in the past. The use of Chinese labourers 
in South Africa at the start of the Edwardian period had been very controversial. In fact, it had been a, a factor that brought down Arthur Balfour's Conservative government in 1906. The opposition was founded on two principles. One was uh, a liberal opposition who regarded the transportation of labour from elsewhere um, around the world as somewhat unsavoury, particularly as the workers were often ill-treated. The second strand to this opposition was actually largely from the unions uh, who were, believed that the introduction of unskilled foreign labour into uh, the British Empire would diminish wages, would reduce the rights of employees and so forth. And so they opposed it on those grounds. So we actually see two strands of political opposition to the use of Chinese labour. Was the kind of work, the task that these people did, similar to what their British equivalent would have been? Or was there a distinction in some way? There were some distinctions. I think we can be apt to forget just how hard members of the British working class worked in the Edwardian period and into the First World War. Long hours, demanding work, backbreaking work in some cases. But what marked the Chinese Labour Corps out as rather different was for a British worker, no matter how hard the work, once the working day was over, you were at liberty to do what you wished. You could go and spend time with your family, go to the pub, engage in leisure pursuits. For the Chinese, they were kept almost as indentured servants in their camps. They were not allowed out of their camps at night. They worked seven days a week, so they didn't have a day off. They were very poorly paid. And although uh, they were paid and they did have certain rights, for example, they were given medical treatment and so on, they were essentially indentured servants. They did not have the freedoms, limited as they were, that the British working class enjoyed. The work was just as hard, I think, for both uh, both Chinese and British workers. But that distinction that the Chinese were essentially indentured servants is a very important one. This might be an impossible question, but what would an average day have been like for these Chinese people? Well, that's <laughs> that's a very good question. I, we can take a guess and I will offer you a broad image of what it might have looked like. The workers would have been roused just before dawn. They would have been um, commanded to uh, wash and prepare themselves a breakfast. They were not given the food themselves. They would have to uh, make their own food, which would have been a simple meal of some type. They were given a, a regular ration needed to keep their strength up. But this would not have been very exciting food. It, it would have been primarily based on the basics, rice, potatoes, uh, a little bit of meat when available and pretty hard bread. After they'd taken their breakfast in the uh, the pre-dawn light, they would have been put to work immediately. Perhaps some of the workers would have worked on maintaining their camp, repairing their huts, repairing the, the fences around it. Others would have been marched out and different uh, groups of the Chinese labourers would have carried out different work. Some would have perhaps been felling trees. Some might have been loading ammunition on and off a train. Some might have been uh, repairing tanks. Some might have been uh, bringing in raw materials such as a concrete or sandbags that would be useful at the front. The key distinction was they would have worked a very long day. Essentially, they'd have worked as long as daylight allowed them, and then they'd have been marched back, they'd have taken a light evening meal, and then they would have probably collapsed into their beds at the end of uh, this very hard working day. Do we know um, how happy they were or kind of how they reacted to this situation? It's difficult to um, offer an overall answer to that question. We know that there were certain instances of indiscipline 
within the camps, which we may well take to represent that they were unhappy. Because the Chinese workers themselves didn't leave much in the way of a written record, we're left with looking at essentially what the British say about the Chinese workers. And initially, the British are, are rather patronising and say, oh, the Chinese are always happy, they're always smiling, uh, they love fun and games, and, and regard them in quite a childlike way. But under the pressures of war and the demands of the work they carry out, there are frequent acts of indiscipline from the Chinese Labour Corps. Um, these can include fighting amongst themselves, attempts to escape, attempts to uh, breach the curfew and so on. And the impression one gains is uh, at least a, a proportion of these workers are well and truly fed up with their conditions and are seeking almost anything they can uh, do to, uh, to um, escape them or relieve the monotony. And much of the indiscipline the Chinese Labour Corps records is to do with gambling, it's to do with uh, low-level scuffles, which suggest a, a, a sort of frustrated workforce just trying to find something to uh, lighten the, the load of their work. Was there any tension between them and the British, personally? Um, there was tension between Chinese and British um, soldiers and workers. Generally, the two did not entirely mingle. The Chinese were kept relatively far away from the front line. But that was a, a very, very um, distinct decision made by the British. They did not want Chinese workers fraternising with either French civilians or British soldiers. And, of course, this contributed to, um, if not mutual hostility, at least mutual misunderstanding. There was no opportunity for British soldiers and Chinese workers to get to know one another on a personal level. And that was very different from, say, the British army and the Indian army, which did have um, the opportunity to mingle with one another. And so the Chinese were regarded almost with a patronising eyes by the British. I'm not sure that they, we could say the British army regarded them with hostility, but they simply regarded them through the eyes of ignorance. And at the same time, we know little about what the Chinese really thought of their the British whom they were working with. Again, the lack of a written record makes it difficult to determine. Where we do see a positive relationship between the two, it is rather framed in the language of the empire. So the Chinese are regarded as a rather childlike race, one that needs to be looked after by the um, superior British uh, white race. And we can look at that now with our uh, 21st century eyes and imagine it must have been tremendously patronising for the Chinese workers who, let's not forget, they volunteered to come from China. They have travelled thousands of miles to the Western Front. They're working seven days a week for very low wages and they're regarded as, as a step below the white uh, officers whom command them. Do, I mean, is that lack of written record a key reason in the the fact that this story isn't widely remembered or hasn't been fairly recently? It's certainly a factor. We are somewhat dependent and have been for a long time on some form of written record. And with the First World War, we're very lucky because of the widespread use of the typewriter, high levels of literacy amongst Western European citizens and so on, that we've had a, an almost embarrassment of riches in terms of the record. And so it's perhaps natural that the Chinese Labour Corps, as it has not left us much of a written record, has been neglected. But I also think there's another reason for this, and this is a, a very deliberate attempt by the Allies to omit the Chinese Labour Corps from the history of the conflict, um, not recognising their contribution, uh, neglecting their role in this, uh, and generally regarding them as um, not exactly expendable, but certainly expendable from the historical record, that they simply weren't considered important enough for their work to be widely recorded. And this perhaps suited the Western powers who were uh, having 
exploited the Chinese labour, were very happy to then send them back on their way and forget about them. And I think that's that combinate that in combination with the lack of written record has led to them being um, neglected in the history. I mean, what does this episode tell us about the British Empire in this period more broadly? Oh, well, it tells us a number of things. I think first, um, if we just take it from a, um, a strategic view, it shows the tremendous reach of the British Empire, that the empire could recruit a substantial tens of thousands strong workforce from the other side of the world and then ship them to a war zone and put them to work and employ them and pay them. Um, only a world empire would be capable of doing this. The French were as well, of course, but for example, the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians could never have shipped in this type of labour and they were forced to resort to slave labour taken from occupied territories. As a strategic feat, it shows the power then of the empire. But on a more um, social historical level, we also see a microcosm with the Chinese Labour Corps of how the British Empire viewed other races. There was a a very, very popular theory of the day, which regarded other races other than whites, that is, of course, and as uh, being grouped into various categories. So there were martial races. These were races of people who were regarded as good fighters. And amongst them, there might be the Zulus of South Africa, the Sikhs of India, the Maoris of New Zealand, um, peoples who were regarded as being physically impressive and potentially warrior races. Then there were races below that who were somewhat regarded as servant races, those who had not yet... Um, become warlike, were not considered especially technologically or socially advanced. And the Chinese very much fell into that category for the British. They were seen as a relatively simple people, hardworking, earnest, and yet at the same time having an almost childlike naivety to the world. And that inherent latent racism within the British contributed to the way the Chinese were treated. They were not treated as equals to British workers. No British worker would have put up with those type of conditions, and yet the Chinese were expected to. And that tells us a lot, I think, about race relations within the British Empire at this time. So there was a plaque unveiled, I think, for the first time, wasn't there, uh, a few weeks ago. Why do you think something like that is important? Well, the unveiling of the plaque to the Chinese Labour Corps is tremendously important because it's the first time there has been official uh, remembrance and recognition of the Chinese Labour Corps within Britain itself. It's the first time they've been given a memorial to emphasise both their sacrifice and, of course, the importance of their work. And that's a real step forward in remembering Britain's forgotten army. And what do you hope this documentary and this project more generally achieves? I hope it, it, show, it sheds light on a really forgotten aspect of uh, the First World War. And I hope it's of interest to a huge range of uh, those who study the subject. We're all familiar with the generals and the, the big battles of the First World War, and they're fascinating in their own right. But we're so apt to forget things that went on behind the lines. And so even for those who might be more interested in the fighting, I'm sure it will be of very great interest to them to see how uh, logistics were carried out behind the lines. For those who are interested in the British Empire, this is a, a really good snapshot into a small and, I have to say, somewhat unsavoury story about the use of 
imperial labour, so to speak, uh, for very much a British war. And for those who are interested in the social history and want to tie in uh, Anglo-Chinese relations, a subject that, of course, is, is, is of great relevance in the 21st century, understanding these early interactions between the British Empire and um, the uh, Chinese people will shed a great deal of light on, uh, on how the different races regarded one another and, of course, the importance of China to the success of the British Empire itself. It, I think it's fair to say that without the Chinese Labour Corps in the First World War, uh, results, if not necessarily being very different, would certainly the war would certainly have been uh, far more hard fought. Do you think the war would have gone on longer? I think it may well have gone on longer. Um, and Britain would have had to find Labour from somewhere. It couldn't call upon Labour from its own um, the own British Isles. If it hadn't been the Chinese Labour Corps, perhaps Britain would have looked elsewhere for Labour, again drawing from the empire. Um, as it was, the Chinese came very willingly to participate in this labour work, came very willingly to the Western Front. Uh, and their contribution, and it's a willing contribution, we must remember, is worthy of remembrance. Do you think this story has any lessons for us in the 21st century? The Chinese Labour Corps story certainly has echoes for today. We're living in an era where we have um, much criticism of economic migrants. We have tensions between organised labour and governments. We have a uh, the pressures of globalisation. We have the pressure on wages. We read daily about the difficulties of um, sourcing sufficient labour for jobs that are considered um, difficult or unsavoury or ill-paid. And the Chinese Labour Corps story reminds us that this nothing we are seeing now is necessarily new. We have gone through these tensions in the past. We have had the problems with requiring cheap, unskilled labour before, and we have not necessarily solved them a century on. And I think remembering and understanding and studying the Chinese Labour Corps and the difficulties they faced and the problems they encountered gives us a unique perspective on the difficulties and problems that economic migrants face in the present day. And perhaps we can look back on the experience of the Chinese Labour Corps, particularly how they were treated, the attitudes they encountered, the patronising um, approach of the establishment towards them. And perhaps we can learn something from that. And perhaps we can do better in the 21st century than our forebearers did towards uh, migrants in the 20th. That was Dr Spencer Jones. And as I mentioned at the start, Britain's Forgotten Army airs on Sunday the 12th of November on Channel 4 at 7pm. And for more global history, don't forget to check out our sister title, BBC World Histories, which is available from many good news agents and directly from us via the History Special Edition section of buysubscriptions.com. And meanwhile, the December issue of BBC History magazine has just gone on sale, featuring articles on the Balfour Declaration, the Blitz, Elizabeth I's love rival, and plenty more. Well, that's about all for today, but please do listen in on Monday when Michael Burley and Piers Brendan will be discussing the historical roots of some of modern society's biggest dilemmas. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, 
historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.